know, the line, Sean, about we shall not see his like again. Well, we shall not. How could we? Because he's the sum of, of all the most terrible and remarkable experiences of the, of the, of the 20th century. And, you know, that a, that a guy like that who barely got away from, from the Nazis who were hunting for Jewish boys like him, um, and the streets of his his hometown of Budapest, he barely got away. And uh, and look, he's now one of the wealthiest people in the world, and uh, and he doesn't spend his billions on on yachts. He spends his uh, what he has on um, on trying to make a difference. And he's you know he made he made his bundle and then he spent it on the rest of us. That was Cotty Martin a pretty legendary journalist and humanitarian, talking about her friend and colleague, George Soros. But you've probably heard of Soros in a very different way. Well, for many years, leftist billionaire George Soros has used his wealth to remake our society, American society. And, you know, Soros has effectively intimidated people into not criticizing him. It's some kind of moral crime uh, to call this to public attention, but it is in the public's interest to know. That was Tucker Carlson sounding a lot like me on this show, talking about someone like Paul Singer or Charles Koch controlling our government. I talk a lot about people manipulating world events from behind the scenes. And to some, no one better represents that than George Soros. To a certain group of people, George Soros is the ultimate enemy of freedom, the evil figure at the center of one of those conspiracy corkboards with all the red strings. All the red strings lead to George Soros. Whenever there's something these people don't like, claiming Soros funded it has almost become second nature. This show is about the people who run the world, and to a certain group of people, there is no better example. So, who is George Soros? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at those who have it. No one is more frequently accused of having too much power than George Soros. Soros was born in 1930 in Hungary, Budapest, to a decently well-off family. His mother's family were successful fabric merchants, and his father was an academic of Esperanto. Have you heard of Esperanto? It's one of those things you go on a research wormhole about when you're procrastinating something, like writing a podcast about George Soros. Esperanto is a language developed in Poland in the 1800s, meant to be universal, something everyone could speak to bring the world closer together. Soros was born at an interesting time. Here's Emily Tampkin. She's the U.S. editor for The New Statesman and just published a biography on George Soros. He is the younger of two sons. um, And, you know, he says that he adored everything about his father, except for the way that his father treated his mother, because the father was a bit of a, a womanizer. And his mother was much more sensitive and not not the kind of take charge person that his father was. Despite the family's modest wealth, this wasn't a great time for the Soroses. You really need to understand the world that he was born into. 
which is Budapest in 1930, coming out of the First World War, after which they were on the losing side. They lose all this territory and people, uh, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, but, but sadly turn around and blame Hungarian Jews. All of a sudden you had these Hungarian Jews who, who had thought of themselves as Hungarian, who had been a part of the Hungarian National Project, who you know were part of this like great glittering elite of Budapest, and all of a sudden they're not anymore. Now they're Jewish. The Soroses were Jewish, but not religious, and his family wasn't a part of the larger local Jewish community. Hungary at the time had lots of the same anti-Semitic sentiment that was growing all over Europe. So his father changes the family name from Schwartz to Soros. But things were headed in the wrong direction for Jews in Europe. The Nazis take over. Originally, Hungary had been sort of on the side of the Nazis, but then Hitler suspected um, that Hungary was going to betray him. So Nazis come into Hungary. Soros and his family hide out as Christians. His father finds Christian identities like papers, not just for them, but for for friends and for friends of friends. Um, and the, one of the conspiracy theories about him is that his father made money off of this, when in reality, there were some people like close friends whom he knew could afford it, who he charged, but for many other people, he did it just for free. When Soros was 13, he watched firsthand as his homeland was seized by brutal fascism. He saw humanity bearing the worst that it is capable of. He learned the ropes of survival uh, during the Nazi occupation of, of Budapest, his hometown. He was 13, 14 years old when this happened. And this is, I think, the, the first kind of defining moment of his life, not only because uh, of, of obviously he was like living through history and, and with great stakes, um, but because he saw the way in which his father took control of the situation and how if you, you know, living by the rules was going to get them killed. And so you kind of had to change the rules so that you could survive. The idea that Soros, you know, as a teenage boy was a Nazi collaborator, which is one of the more frequent conspiracy theories that, that, you, that you hear about him is completely ludicrous. Yeah, that's another thing that spreads around a lot, that Soros worked with the Nazis. George Soros was 15 years old when Hitler died, and so obviously he was even younger for most of the war. In reality, the Holocaust devastated much of what the young Soros knew. Here's Connie Martin. In terms of, uh, of history, it was one of the worst uh, chapters of the Holocaust. Uh, Hungary's Jewish population uh, was, was decimated during the last uh, months, weeks, actually, of World War II, and uh, including, uh, very sadly, grandparents whom I never knew, who were shipped to, uh, to Auschwitz. Auschwitz, uh, a Nazi concentration camp where 1.1 million Jews, Roma, Poles, and others were killed. When the war ended, the Soviet occupation of Budapest began. In 1956, a failed revolution against Soviet forces saw thousands of revolutionaries and Hungarian civilians killed. But Soros wasn't in Hungary. He'd made his way to London. George Soros already had the emotional understanding of what fascism could do to the world. He watched it firsthand, but in London, he gets an intellectual understanding. He gets his English to the point where he can enroll in the London School of Economics. This is super important because uh, this is where he went to university. And it's where he studies under the, the, the tutelage of this man named Karl Popper. Uh, Karl Popper wrote Open Society, and this is his kind of intellectual and philosophical mentor. 
Popper supports academically what Soros saw in Hungary, that the fascisms of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union are built on the same idea and together are completely antithetical to democracy, to open society. Popper wrote in his landmark text, Open Society and Its Enemies, quote, It is the longing of uncounted unknown men to free themselves and their minds from the tutelage of authority and prejudice. It is their attempt to build up an open society which rejects the absolute authority of the merely established and the merely traditional while trying to preserve, to develop, and to establish traditions, old or new, that measure up to their standards of freedom, of humaneness, and of rational criticism. Soros is fascinated by this idea of an open society, having seen in Hungary the alternative in more than one way. But like anyone, even in modern times, Soros was kind of aimless after college. He worked random jobs like, quote, selling fancy goods on the seaside, whatever that means. But he didn't feel like he was very good at selling fancy goods by the seaside. It was time to try something else. His desire to change the world, his obsession with an open society, brought him to banking? He uh, is having some trouble, as, as many a postgrad has, in finding, uh, finding what he wants to do. And so he's working on jobs. He, he feels like he's getting away from his sense of self. And so he starts to go look for different um, like banking firms to join. Soros literally cold calls a bunch of banks looking for jobs, like how your parents still think job hunting goes. You know, just go to their office with a resume and a nice shirt, sweetie. He doesn't have much luck. And at one, they tell him, well, you're not right. You're not going to be hired anywhere because you aren't from the right school and you're not even from the right country. But in a twist at this place called Singer and Friedlander, uh, one of the partners was Hungarian. So he was from the right country. And he stays there for a few years, but then he moves to New York City. His older brother had had defected and gone to the United States. Um, he goes to New York City. He joins a brokerage firm and then an investment firm. Um, and then eventually he ends up at Arnold and S. Bleischroeder. And there he starts this model account with $100,000. It does well. Soros reflected on this time at the Los Angeles World Affairs Council in 2006. Quote, well, I wasn't really that interested in money, actually. I wanted to make $100,000 and then retire on that and devote my time to other things that I'm interested in. That's what brought me to America. I wanted to do this in five years, and actually, after I accomplished that, then I got sucked into making money. One thing led to another, and I got caught in it. And then when I made my funds into $100 million and my personal wealth was about $30 million, I thought, why should I keep on making money? One thing led to another, huh? Well... We'll dig into exactly how Soros got so rich and answer that question. Why should he keep making money? Speaking of making money, here's an ad. In the late 60s, Soros discovers a new kind of investment, which you might remember from the eerily similar story of our last episode. In 1969, he sets up something called the Double Eagle Fund, and they put $4 million in it. And the Double Eagle Fund was a long and short stock picking mechanism. So it was like his first baby hedge fund. And it did well. So at this point, he's like, I'm pretty good at this hedge fund thing. I'm going to go start my own firm, um, which he did. And it was called the Soros Fund. And then eventually, and very famously, the Quantum Fund. And this is how he becomes one of like the great hedge fund people in, in really in, in history. Soros had started amassing the massive wealth he has today. His hedge fund was so big and so powerful 
uh, and he made bets that were so big and so powerful that he was able to successfully destabilize not just entire currencies, but entire countries. Soros was grilled about this on 60 Minutes in 1998. In the last two years, you've been blamed for financial collapse of Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Japan, and Russia. Yeah, all, of the, all of the above. That's, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. Are you that powerful? No, I think there's a great misunderstanding. I think that I've been blamed for everything. I am basically there to, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. In the late 1970s, he has this moment where he's trying to um, make a deal and he's you know, running up and down London and he's, uh, even though he was living in the States at the time, he's running up and down London and he's like all panicky. He's like, if I die, it will just have been for, for making money. Like I might as well do something with this money. <laughs> if I die, it might as well be for a cause. His life was about money. But I think it was mostly that he was extremely good at making it and less that he dreamed of being this great capitalist. This was the beginning of Soros as philanthropist or the beginning of his global influence scheme, whichever side you're on. My first effort was actually in South Africa, um, and that was not successful. Uh, the idea was that South Africa is a is a. Uh, close, close society along racial lines, but it basically has all the the institutions of a of a first world country. And if one could uh, empower uh, black Africans uh, to to get education, uh, then you could perhaps open up South Africa. And uh, that didn't didn't quite. Work. I wish I wish I had kept it going, but I, after a while I, I gave up. And then I got involved in Eastern Europe. That's how Soros met Timothy Garden Ash, professor of European studies at Oxford. Uh, we met first in the 1980s. I was then writing about dissidents in Eastern Europe, and as you know, he started his foundation activities supporting opposition activity in Hungary, and it was brilliant and pioneering work. And in fact, I remember the dinner party at which someone said, there's this wonderful Hungarian called George Soros, who at that point nobody had heard of. Um, and he became, of course, a pioneer in that kind of uh, philanthropic, um, adventurous philanthropic work uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Soros opens a foundation in Hungary to fight the Soviets in the realm of ideas, funding photocopiers to schools and libraries. It was the 80s. A photocopier was an important tool for disseminating information in a time and place when information was strictly controlled by the government. Meanwhile, he's having a much bigger role in the fate of other nations. In 1982, Soros invested in a short of the British pound, an investment position where he makes money if the pound goes down in value. Because Soros is respected as an investor, others followed his lead. The massive sell-off was a disaster. The British government tried to stop it, but they couldn't compete with how fast Soros' quantum fund was selling off pounds. It all went down as Black Tuesday. The UK lost over $3 billion. Soros made a billion. His decisions and actions in that financial sphere spill over into the public sphere and the public space. Arguably, some have argued that this put it on the path toward Brexit. If you can do that, if you can um, 
short currency in Thailand causing or contributing to at least Asian financial tumult, then you're not just a financial actor, right? You're a financial actor whose choices and decisions and actions have political and public repercussions. That's part of what's so interesting about Soros. The way he made and continues to make his money is directly at odds with the world he claims he wants to build in spending it. As Soros is breaking the Bank of England, he's funneling a lot of those profits into Eastern Europe. I think he was one of the people he's, who, who understood that coming out of socialism and communism, these countries in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, um, that, that it could very easily be taken over by nationalism if somebody did not come in to try to promote liberal democracy. Soros' task was about to shift dramatically. The Soviet Union fell and the communist regime collapsed in Hungary. Here's Kadi Martin. Hungary, after um, the end of the Cold War, had a real shot at being a thriving democracy uh, for the first time. Soros aimed to build stable democracies in Central and Eastern Europe. He wrote, quote, People who have been living in a totalitarian system all their lives need outside assistance to turn their aspirations into reality. End quote. Which sounds great, but don't forget he's talking about using his wealth to influence people from afar, no matter how positive his claimed intentions might be. He has said that he really thought that there were going to be other people lighting up behind him to do this second Marshall Plan for Central and Eastern Europe. There's this one line in one of his books where he looks behind and there's nobody there. And in fact, in Potsdam, he gave a speech where he talked about a Marshall Plan for Eastern Europe and was like laughed at. Um, but, you know, he did it anyway. And I think that for whatever you can say about him, you kind of have to say that. Ultimately, the power vacuum left behind after the collapse of the Soviet Union would lead to oligarchy in Russia and much of Central and Eastern Europe. But in the West, Soros was getting wealthier and wealthier and spendier. His focus is everything that needs fixing on the planet. I mean, if that's not an ambitious uh, game plan, uh, I don't know what is. He is a pessimist, but he's an active pessimist. His pessimism is the kind that keeps him fighting, not the passive pessimist. Albert Camus writes about this kind of committed pessimist. Camus uses Sisyphus as the image of the man who keeps rolling that rock up the mountain and then watches it roll back, but keeps rolling it up the mountain, even if it's just a few feet up the mountain, because what other choice do we have? That, I think, really, in a nutshell, is who George Soros is. He will keep rolling that rock up the mountain with his last breath, not out of any illusion that the rock will ever get to the top of the mountain and stay there, but that we have no choice. The human species is so flawed, and we're proving that now in the most dramatic way, um, that after, after 70 years of peace and prosperity and, and more freedom than, than any society has ever had, we're, we're regressing rapidly. Um, and, and that kind of confirms George's innate dark vision of humanity, which 
first experience on the, on the wild streets of Budapest where a little Jewish kid was not safe. That was George's first and most illuminating experience of life and of human beings and of human nature. Let's roll back to the 80s. There's a character I want to bring in. Young Hungarian activist Viktor Orban. Soros is in the midst of spending tons of money in an attempt to save post-Soviet Eastern European nations from fascism. Orban traveled in the same circles as Soros and two of our guests, Kadi Martin and Timothy Garnash. I first got to know Viktor Orban when he was an idealistic young liberal student in the late 1980s. Uh, and he was, of course, a Soros-funded uh, scholar at Oxford. Orban seemed like the exact type of Hungarian that could help keep Hungary open, free from dictatorship. And yeah, he got a scholarship to Oxford funded by the Soros Institute. Back in the day when, when uh, Viktor Orban was, was um, a reformist politician, a young firebrand, um, who was going to usher in a, a new era in, in Hungary. Um, and I met him in, in Budapest. And I forget how. I was, I was an American journalist. I was uh, married to Peter Jennings, who was the American anchor, and, and we would do reporting from Budapest. Uh, at any rate, uh, I offered to host a dinner for him in our, in our home in New York. He jumped at that, and I invited George Soros and some other, some other friends who I thought could be helpful to, to Orban. And I hasten to add that, that this was way before he turned into this power-mad dictator. Yeah. Mad dictator. Fast forward to the early 2000s. Orban does hold political power in Hungary, but not like anyone anticipated. He really showed all the signs of being, you know, a kind of a new new man. <laughs> this will shock you. Power corrupts. It went straight to his head. And uh, he lost an election um, and vowed never again to lose another one. Orban has built a government that's kind of a gleefully not open society. Viktor Orban invented um, the, the phrase, He's very proud of this illiberal democracy, which in a way is kind of Trump before Trump. Illiberal democracy. That's what Orban, again, proudly calls this government that's ostensibly a democracy. People vote and so on. But it's still distinctly authoritarian. Well, illiberal democracy, which is Viktor Orban's Sad contribution to to the political lexicon is is makes absolutely no sense. I don't know if I'm allowed to say on your air that it's bullshit, but it's bullshit. This is a man that Soros once supported, turning Hungary into exactly what Soros was trying to save it from. So many things show up like this in these stories of global power, mere existential ironies, dramatically curious moments that play a part in destabilizing our world. Here's Timothy Garton-Ash. It's really a, a personal battle between those two and all over the region and actually all over the world now. In the anti-liberal counter-revolution, Soros has come to be almost a synonym for, for global liberalism, uh, which I think is an ironic fate and, and a sort of backhanded compliment to him. Um, in the case of Hungary, it's actually very sad because it was one of the most advanced countries 
uh, in the transition to democracy, we all thought it had the best chances of turning into a, you know, a good liberal democracy. And actually, it's led the charge away from democracy back towards authoritarianism. Today, Orban and Soros are truly battling for the heart of Hungary. Orban is prime minister and recently signed something he literally called a Stop Soros Bill that would make it illegal to help refugees in Hungary. Meanwhile, in the United States... Do you ever see when the fake news interviews them and then they try and cut it, but then they'll go to a person holding a sign who gets paid by Soros or somebody, right? That's what happens. They used to send in, they don't do it anymore. They haven't, they probably, maybe they'll try starting again. But they used to send in uh, protesters, paid The Democrats would send them? The Democrats and Soros, and they came from all over. And by the way, George Soros declared 1.5 billion. He declared 1.5 billion in losses in six months. And in 2014, Warren Buffett lost $873 million. I wonder if they deducted that. Do you think? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Why would they ever do a thing like that, right? Today, George Soros is no longer just a mere villain to the right wing. He's a, or even the, household name of conspiracy. He is to global overlord what Band-Aid is to adhesive bandages. How did a billionaire philanthropist become this reviled boogeyman when we're back. According to the Anti-Defamation League, 500,000 negative tweets about George Soros are posted every single day. Half a million. Soros has been a favorite of talk radio and certain 24-hour news stations for years. But it took a push from Soros's former protege, Viktor Orban, to turn the conspiracy into a full-fledged meme. In 2013 in Hungary, Viktor Orban needed something to rile people up about to consolidate power. George Soros was a perfect enemy at first because everybody knew him. But then at second guess, you would say, why George Soros? Because he's like, he's like this philanthropist who had supported, you know, the fight against communism, even during the dictatorship before the wall came down. Hannes Grassinger is a German reporter who wrote the major investigative piece, The Plot Against George Soros, for BuzzFeed, detailing how this conspiracy meme took hold. He's a, a left-leaning liberal in his philanthropy. He'd been, you know, pushing for democracy in Hungary, and he'd been helping students, he'd been giving scholarships, he built one of the best universities in Eastern Europe, in, in Budapest, the capital of uh, Hungary. And so he was quite a, you know, like a sort of a popular person. But no matter how much Soros spent, how many photocopiers he bought or future dictators he was patron to, democracy just wouldn't stick in Eastern Europe. And that means a lot for the rest of the world. Hungary is turning into this kind of a petri dish for uh, for nationalism in the heart of Europe. It is primarily racist uh, against uh, Muslims. There are virtually none in Hungary, but you don't just as you don't need Jews for anti-Semitism to thrive, you don't really need Muslims for anti-Islamic fever to rage. You just need somebody telling you 
oh my God, they're coming, the horde. And this is where George Soros comes into the picture because Victor Orban needed to um, have a demon and he chose George Soros as the demon. And Soros is a really easy guy to make look evil. He's a hedge fund manager who made some truthfully very cynical bets on the world economy throughout his career and potentially caused millions or billions of losses for his own profit. Then, with that profit, he funds programs that he fully and proudly admits are in pursuit of a, quote, global system of political decision-making, end quote. Literally a one-world order. Here's Hannes Grassinger. So it's sort of a global phenomenon to portray Soros as this um, evil, um, you know, puppet master holding the strings um, behind like every major political, um, you know, happening in the world. And that's, that's you, you, can, you can find evil George Soros memes in political campaigns in, in Kenya. You can find it in Latin America. You find it in Eastern Europe. You find it in Germany. You find it you find it in the U.S. And so it's, it's, it's global. George Soros has become a meme, and uh, it's become one of the most powerful political memes of, of the last decade. Remember, the word meme often gets misused to just mean, like, funny picture on the Internet. But it really means any idea that humanity seizes on and manipulates and adds on to. Making George Soros a manipulatable idea that anyone can put into their own conspiracy theories is key. In some ways, this isn't organic. This is like the, the same operatives are working in these different places. And you're like, that sounds similar. And it's because it's coming from the same, literally the same people. However, after Orban comes back to power, basically it's, it's okay, now how do I hold on to power? And the way that you do that is you come up with a political enemy. We don't need to tell you again that having a villain in your political messaging is super important. So many of the people that have seized power in our system have known that. Mitch McConnell, Roger Ailes, Steve Bannon. And the idea of negative campaigning is that you actually don't speak too much about your program, but you as a political party speak about your opponent's weaknesses and you make your opponent the enemy and you kind of like start externalizing, you know, everything that is bad in the world, you know, and blame that on your, uh, put that blame on your opponent. When Soros first got into political spending in the early 2000s, he started popping up on Fox News shows. In 2007, Bill O'Reilly made his first mention of Soros. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thanks for watching us tonight. We have a powerful and important program, so I hope you stay through the whole thing. You won't be sorry. Buying political power. That is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. Factor has been investigating far-left billionaire George Soros, a man who wants to impose a radical left agenda on America, and under the radar, he is making great progress. Soros has set up a complicated political operation designed to do two things, buy influence among some liberal politicians and smear people with whom he disagrees. But just like any great conspiracy, the theories about Soros really took off with the internet and social media, specifically ad-based social media. The idea of micro-targeting is to actually um, 
break down your messaging to a granular at the very best to an individual level and um, to to so that I as a as a marketeer of ideas I can reach out to millions of people in in an individual personalized way it's like bullets in 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 a machine gun so if the machine gun is twitter then um, the bullet is the meme 500,000 tweets per day and that's just twitter Soros is all over social media and, as you heard earlier, even on cable news. The development of such a simple and effective message is what Hannes wrote about for BuzzFeed. This strategy was developed um, by a political consultant called Arthur Finkelstein. Arthur Finkelstein is the kind of guy I really like to cover on this show. He played with power for decades as a powerful consultant to right-wing politicians across the world and trained a generation of guys just like him, like Roger Stone. They call them Arthur's kids. Finkelstein developed rejectionist voting, the strategy of just demonizing your opponent as much as possible. Viktor Orban hired him. It's not like they invented um, it's not like Arthur Finkelstein invented George Soros as an enemy. They just formulated it much more effectively and, and turned it into a meme. The arguments that were used against George Soros, like lies that he had helped the Nazis during the Holocaust and um, lies about a great plan for the replacement of the European population with a southern population coming from Africa or northern Africa. All these theories are completely made up. It's like somebody who created a collage by cutting out words and copy-pasting them together. It's like if you, if you turn around the words somebody tells you and you, you just use them against that person. This all sounds awfully familiar. So what Trump was using um, during the 2016 elections, apart from the techniques of micro-targeting, was a strategy called rejectionist voting, um, a negative campaigning strategy that, that had been developed um, like years before in Eastern Europe. Here's Emily Tamkin. I think... In a lot of places, the United States included, what we see is this kind of alliance between the super wealthy and a people who believes in, a, in America, it's, you know, white Christian nationalism. Um, in, in Hungary, actually, you have the same. And it's a way to kind of feed the, uh, to scratch that emotional itch of your base, for want of a better word, while keeping yourself in power. So... Who benefits? I, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it's the people of the United States or of Hungary or of Israel or of anywhere else who benefit from their leaders pushing, but it seems like the leaders who stay in power, um, that, that they might benefit from it. Putin really didn't like George Soros. So Viktor Orban, eager to kind of like reposition himself, you know, he knew that by going against George Soros, he would make new friends. He would please Putin in a way. And so you see the whole, you know, he's kind of like, Viktor Orban is sort of like this nexus between, you know, Eastern 
an anti-liberalism coming from the Putin side and Western anti-liberalism coming from the right fringe um, or the right side of the Republican Party that Trump stood for in 2016. When you're dismissing Soros or writing off Soros or coming up with something crazy about this man, it's also uh, it also works to demonize other the people who's, uh, who his money has traditionally gone to support, therefore making the money more necessary, right? So you have this, this feedback loop where the conspiracy theories make it more difficult to do the work, but also make it more necessary, more urgent, and remind of why Soros thought it was important to have somebody pushing money into society to try to liberalize and open it in the first place. In terms of the legacy, uh, in a curious way, um, the, the massive attacks on Soros as a kind of epitome of global liberalism have increased his world historical significance. Because when historians look back, they will always associate his name with what I like to call the global liberal revolution since 1989, and now the anti-liberal counter-revolution against it. Um, I, some of his legacy, of course, in individual countries has been dismantled, but I think in the long term, there'll be a liberal pushback. In Polish, when, when, when someone has a birthday, one sings a song called Stolat, which means, will you, may you live for 100 years. And I hope George will live for 100 years, because I think if he lives for 100, he will see a reversion back towards democracy in Hungary. I don't think Orban is going to last longer than another 10 years. What would Timothy Garnash say to someone who thinks Soros is evil no matter what? I would say take a trip to Prague or Budapest and talk to a few of the people he's supported. Um, and then you'll see what a great thing he's been doing. I'd also say, if you think, not associated with George Soros, because he's an exception, but if you think we have a world in which very rich people and corporations, a sort of plutocratic corporate oligarchy, has a bit of a stranglehold on our states, much to the disbenefit of democracy, I think you have a point. So I think he's an exception, but I think there's a real problem with uh, plutocracy. But wait, Soros even admitted as early as 1997, quote, the main enemy of the open society, I believe, is no longer the communist, but the capitalist threat, end quote. But remember... Soros also said. I think that uh, I've been blamed, blamed for everything. I am basically there to, uh, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. But can piles of cash buy open society? You can't buy liberal democracy. You can try to create conditions in which it's more likely to flourish, which I think is what he was trying to do with scholarships and, and you know, debate trips and a university and cultural organizations and funding. Um, but I think what we've seen, and if there's a criticism of him, it's it, or one of the criticisms one could make of him is this, um, it, it can't be top down. And I think what we've seen is it's kind of not enough. And I think increasingly what we're seeing around the world is that how, how do you do this in a way that creates, or can you do this in a way that creates a bottom, bottom up enthusiasm? Enthusiasm. How can anyone in pursuit of a more democratic society look at the way the world is today and have enthusiasm? It's, it's not a pretty picture. 
Um, and, and it's not at all what George Soros was expecting for 21st century America, I can assure you of that. But it's, again, I repeat, he is not um, giving up because that's not in his nature. I think he will be fighting till his last breath. He is an, he's an active pessimist. It's remarkable that at 90, he is as voraciously curious about the state of the world and as up to speed on what's going on everywhere. And he will um, ask you the most <laughs> probing and provocative questions uh, at, at uh, dinner at his house. He's, I mean, he's not, he, he, he hasn't dropped any of, of those qualities with age. He's, he's, uh, he's still a force. He is uh, engaged pretty much in every country that you can name in some way. That is to say countries that, that, that need help. I'm not, I don't think he's heavy on the ground in, in Sweden or Norway. But, but like, you know, uh, from Myanmar to, to, um, to Mozambique. His reach is massive. Open society is now at, at an enormous uh, global presence with, uh, you know, billions invested and thousands of, of people uh, representing uh, all the many uh, causes that he works for and uh, on behalf of and, and you know, from, from uh, HIV and now COVID vaccine to, to um, you know, women's rights and, and uh, obviously, obviously human rights, press freedom, um, climate change. I mean, he's involved in all the big issues of the day, all the things that, that, uh, that our own government now is increasingly um, pulling back from. George is like, well, a kind of a, a, a separate government, if you will, a global global government. That will not uh, close shop uh, when he goes, but the, nor, nor, nor can I imagine that it'll be the same without him. I mean, he's, he's the engine, he's the force, he's the, He's the tough-minded founder, um, and you know all of us who are who are in his orbit in one way or another want to live up to to his very tough-minded uh, expectations. And as I said earlier, we shall not see his like again because he's the product of of you know certain historical events that um, that produced such a strong and brilliant and resilient survivor you know he's got enemies everywhere which is a sign of uh, how seriously this 90 year old guy is taken um you know he gets people all hot and bothered not because he's in you know playing golf uh like like other geriatrics um but because he's still making he's still shaking things up he's still making a difference he's still um, provoking. He's still a force to contend with. It's a way we should all turn 90. I think he's come back to that rather elemental struggle for freedom, to put it at its simplest. Um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a curious and perhaps slightly sad way, he, he's back where he started. His life, his childhood experience was experiencing a dictatorship in Hungary. Uh, 
then through his adult life, he's like me, has accompanied this you know, amazing, inspiring story of our time, which is the the way freedom came to Central and Eastern Europe, the way democracy was built, open societies were built. And now, in his great old age, that's being eroded and destroyed again. And there's a dictator back in his hometown of Budapest. There's this viral video of a peaceful vigil to Black lives lost to police violence. Organizers put up these huge signs listing the names of those who died. Peaceful. But in the video, a woman enters and starts angrily tearing down the signs, shouting, quote, Get this violence out of here. You are brainwashed. End quote. The organizers beg her to stop. She doesn't. She continues to destroy the vigil and shouts, quote, This is staged by George Soros. And this is no fringe opinion. The president of the United States has consistently linked Soros to protests even as recently as late June, tweeting Breitbart and Project Veritas stories claiming Soros is bankrolling protests. Meanwhile, the people in Soros' native Hungary are suffering under a dictatorship, an illiberal democracy, ruled by a guy Soros used to support, who rose to power by tearing Soros down with propaganda. And these people, people like Trump and Orban, are right to fight Soros. Soros wants to build an open society, which is in direct opposition to the concentrated power those who call him an enemy want for themselves. But how can a politically influential billionaire ever say he fights concentrated power? He does vocally support policies that aren't good for the ultra-rich, unlike most of his peers. But if what Soros is pursuing is the open society, free of closed and consolidated power, is massive spending really the way to do it? Next time on Who Is... The man behind the website where you perhaps found out about this podcast. A place where your mom can share photos of a weird flower she saw. And massive coordinated intelligence operations can craft world politics. One of the richest men in the world who built what was once a website ostensibly to make friends and turned it into a powerful pillow of the internet and society. Next week on Who Is? Infamous webmaster Mark Zuckerberg. A sincere thank you to our guests. Timothy Garden-Ash, a professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford and senior fellow at Stanford University, who's been writing about the transition to democracy in Eastern Europe for 40 years. Hannes Grassiger, an investigative reporter based in Bern, Switzerland, who focuses on digital power and information warfare. Kadi Martin, a Hungarian-born writer, journalist, and activist. Martin is currently working on her 10th book, a biography of Chancellor Angela Merkel and Emily Tamkin, U.S. editor and Washington correspondent at The New Statesman, a political and cultural magazine based in the United Kingdom. Tamkin's new book, The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power, and the Struggle for an Open Society, is available now. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Han, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adekuter. And now this, Tina Zaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, Elias Acevedo, and PJ Evans for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is. 
which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends.